Good evening. Please turn in your scriptures with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we'll begin reading in verse 31. You may, stand, may you please stand with me as we hear God's word together. And we'll begin reading in verse 28 just to get the context. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your holy word, Lord, be, be exalted. May your name be exalted. Help me to honor Christ not to get in the way of your truth. Father, we pray that you would be merciful to my mouth, that I would speak the truth, that you'd be merciful to our ears, that we would receive and obey and hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the title of the message tonight is, What Shall We Then Say to These Things? What shall we then say to these things? And I want to give credit to whom credit is due. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God Has Influenced My Thinking, about this passage, though I'm not preaching his message, but he's been helpful. This is Paul's application of what he has just been saying in verse 28 to 30. Actually, his application of the whole book of Romans up till this point he's been he's been preaching the gospel of God first sin judgment the law justification by faith sanctification and various aspects of the Christian life life in the spirit and now he says what shall we say to these things so really it's a response to verses 28 through 30 but even more even 
also to the whole previous chapters of Romans. As we saw two weeks ago, we saw that Paul declared that he knows, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We saw that wonderful truth, that wonderful fact, that wonderful knowledge that believers can have and that they do have in Christ. That God works those things out for good, though they don't seem good in and of themselves. We saw God's plan and his purpose to make us like Christ, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We saw the golden chain, we could say, of salvation that starts in eternity past in foreknowledge and goes through predestined, <coughs> excuse me, goes through predestination, goes through calling, justification, and then to glorification. <coughs> oh. So Paul says, what shall we then say to these things? What shall we then say to these things? So what is our response? And Paul answers in five different questions, all with implied answers. It's interesting to talk in questions. And Paul likes to talk in questions sometimes. <coughs> Paul is trying to get us to think, to apply what we have learned about God's sovereignty, God's foreknowledge, God's predestination, his calling, justification, and glorification. He's trying to bring all of this to application. These questions that Paul gives, gives in verse 31 to 39 and their answers can be your weapons in times of suffering. We do tend to ask questions in suffering. The first question we tend to ask is the question that we saw in the psalm that was read tonight and also the question that Job asked in his suffering. It's a small question. It's a question, why? We tend to ask why. Why, God, are you doing this? Not necessarily wrong, but if we stay there, it's dangerous. David in the Psalms, he asked questions, but he didn't always just ask why, but he asked questions that spurred his soul on in the time of suffering. Things like this, why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? He was talking to himself. He was taking God's truth and saying, why are, why are you in this condition? Another question he asked was, whom have I in heaven but thee? And it was in the context of suffering. Whom have I, God, in heaven but thee? Like David's questions of old, Paul's questions here can help us to think. They can help us to think about God's truth and apply it in our sufferings. 
His first question is here. So what shall we say to these things? The first question is, if God be for us, who can be against us? He's not wondering if God is for us. He's saying, since God is for us, who can be against us? The implied answer is no one. What a wonderful truth to contemplate tonight. If you're a child of God, God is for you. This is an essential word in this this passage. And he goes on to say, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Notice that word for. And then in verse 34, he says, Who is he that condemneth it is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. God is for his people. If God is for his people, who can be against them? Well, what does it mean to have God for us? This comes really from the Old Testament. In Psalm 56, verse 9, David said, When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. God is for me. The similar concept can be seen in Psalm 124, where it says that the Lord is on our side. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, then may Israel say, and and it goes on. The, The Lord being on our side, the Lord being our helper, the Lord being our strength and our shield and our exceeding great reward, as he told Abraham. The idea is that God is not against you, but he's for you as his child. Not necessarily for everything, all your agendas and all your desires and all your thoughts, but he's for you as as his child. God loves you as his child. He wants the best for you, and he will get it. God is for your sanctification. He is for your glorification. He is for your spiritual growth. He is for your eternal good. He is for your likeness to Christ. He is for his glory in your life. He is for you to be with him forever, glorifying and enjoying him forever. If this is the truth, who can be against you? You say, well, I have enemies. I have the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, guess what? I do too. But who can be against us doesn't mean we don't have enemies. But what he's saying is who can destroy us? Who can overpower us? Who can take us down and bring us under? Can the world, the flesh, and the devil destroy the believer? They can win some battles, but they cannot win the war. Because Christ is victor. Can they overwhelm us completely? No. Why? For God is for us. Can anything thwart God's good plan for the believer? How about the sufferings of life? Can they really be against us? No. 
Instead, they are part of what Paul talks about in Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, for God is for us. If God is for me and for you, can anything really be against us? And Paul answers with a resounding no. The devil will come when there is suffering in your life. The devil will come with suggestions and thoughts that God is against me, that, that, that all these things will destroy me, that, that everything is against me. But ultimately, we must fight his suggestions with this fact. If God is for me, who can be against me? Secondly, the second question that we see is in verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He that spared not his own son. This is the second question Paul gives. And these questions build on each other. God did not hold back. He, didn't, he wasn't stingy in his giving. The greatest thing, the greatest person, the greatest we can say object of God's love is the Son of God. He loves His Son, His beloved Son. And He did not spare, He didn't hold back His Son, but He poured His Son out and gave His Son on the as a sacrifice on the altar of the cross. When you're going through suffering, sometimes the devil will bring the thought that God is holding back from you, that God is keeping something good from you, that he's a hard and stingy master, that he is just not giving you what he promised. But fight with this same question. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God gave the ultimate in love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In 1 John, John tells us, Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is how love is manifested, declared, shown in God's love giving his son God could have spared his son he could have said no cross for my son it wasn't Pilate it wasn't the Jews ultimately who crucified Christ we know of course they did but ultimately the the deciding factor for Christ's crucifixion was God's determination to deliver up his son to be crucified he gave his son. It was God's plan. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a, a something that the devil brought up. But it was God's plan and God's gift for us. He was given for us. When you read about that crucifixion on the cross of Calvary, think about it. It wasn't just something that happens, you know, thousands of years ago, but it was for you. It was for me. What a wonderful truth. What a wonderful gift. God is the greatest giver, and Christ is the greatest gift. 
that could ever be given. This is Paul's point. Paul's point is that God has already given them the greatest gift of all. And surely, if he's given his son, he's going to give you all things. Is there any way that he will not do so? No, surely not. He will not withhold all things if he has already given his son. The gift of the son is a, is a surety, it's a down payment, it's a, it's a confidence that God will give us whatever we need for the Christian journey. So what does Paul mean by all things? He's talking to believers. He's not talking to the prosperity gospel crowd. He's not talking to people who are just interested in getting rich quick. He's not talking about just things that we desire and delight in and lust after. Nice cars, nice homes, and total and complete physical comfort and safety. That would be kind of nice. But that's not what he's talking about. Actually, it wouldn't be nice if it wasn't God's plan. He's talking about all things we need to love God. If you need a nice car to love God, he'll give it to you. But if you don't, he won't. He's talking about all things we need to make it to glory. All things we need to persevere in the Christian race. He's talking about all things we need to endure the all things that he brings in our lives that are working together for good, for our good and for his glory. The all things for the all things. He's talking about all things that we need. God cares about our physical needs, and I believe he does. So some have said, well, it's talking about our spiritual needs here, and I think it's talking about both. It's talking about whatever God sees we need, whether physically, whether spiritually, in order for us to make it to glory. In order for us to fulfill the purpose that he has for us here. And some scriptures that remind us that God does care about our physical needs are, I'll, I'll read a few here from Psalm 34. It says, The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, If ye then be evil, know how to give good things unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Surely that includes spiritual as well as physical. In Matthew 6, the Lord Jesus told us, don't be anxious about your life. Don't take anxious care about it. Because after all these things the Gentiles seek. What things? Food, drink, clothes, shelter, the basic needs of life. Things that we tend to worry about. He said, your heavenly father knows that you have need of all these things. But he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The Lord Jesus promised his disciples that they would receive. Those who had left all and followed him, they would receive in this life houses and Brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and lands and persecutions. And in the time to come, eternal life. 
In other words, God has promised he would care for us physically, temporally, according to his will, and spiritually, and that we would have suffering, persecution, and that we would be, he would see us through to glory. <coughs> so God does care. <coughs> Excuse me. God does care about our bodies as well as our souls. He has promised to provide our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, according to his will. But a Christian's pri priority is not these things. His focus isn't on all these things, but his focus is Christ and his glory. And our focus should be th this, this gift that we already have. God has not spared his own son. We have his son. What a blessing. If God desires to give us life, health, money, gas in our gas tank, whatever it is, praise the Lord. But if not, we have Christ. And having Christ, we have enough. Well, the third question, let us hear it. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? This is the first time the word elect occurs in this chapter, but it's not the first time the concept occurs. And here we see it, it's a word that ties in with that idea of calling, that idea of foreknowledge, that idea of predestination. When we say elect, we mean that God chose. There was an election and God was the one who was electing. He chose a people for himself. Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Not that they didn't choose to follow Christ, but his choice was first. His choice was primary, and he chose them. He saved them, and then they followed him. It says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? This is the idea of courtroom terminology. This is the idea of making a charge. Prosecutors bring charges against the person they accuse them in times of suffering we find that accusations fly from the wicked one from the devil and of course in times of suffering sometimes the spirit the holy spirit will bring conviction of sin so we need to distinguish between the two but normally the spirit is he comes sweetly and of course, it's, it's, it's not always feel sweet when we're convicted of sin, but there's a difference because he's showing us those, that sin. But the, the devil tends to just show us everything and get us all confused and get us, get us off and away from Christ. He brings charges against us. But he says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? How will these charges stick? He says, no one. Basically, his answer is no one. Why? Why shall no one lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Because it is God that justifieth. Who 
if there's a particular case that's going to be tried in our country, it can be brought up to a higher level, to another higher level, until it gets to the Supreme Court. And finally, that is like the top court. And if that case is decided there, the case doesn't go any further. Similarly, in, in Paul's day, when he stood before the king Agrippa, he said, I appeal to Caesar. Or maybe it was before another man. But he said, I appeal to Caesar. And they said, you're going to Caesar. Why? Because Caesar was the final word. He was the final court, the final judge. And no one could, after you get to Caesar, there was nobody else. He was the top. If you were cleared there, you were cleared for good. Like the edicts of the Medes and Persians, it could not be reversed. This is God's court. Greater than the Supreme Court of our land. Greater than the Emperor of Rome. Greater than the Medes and the Persians. The highest court of all. If you are cleared in God's court, you are cleared for good. If God justifies the believer, it cannot be reversed. It cannot be undone. The elect are declared righteous by the highest judge of the universe. No one can bring charges against God's elect. You are safe with this judge if you're in Christ. You don't have to fear the judge if you're in Christ. Not, not that we don't fear God, but what I'm saying is we don't have to fear his judgment, run from his judgment. In Numbers 23, 21, it says, He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. Jacob and Israel in those days were sinful. But God looked upon his people as, as righteous. And this was kind of, I think, a picture for us that God looks at us in his son Christ and he says, righteous. He says, basically, like he said to his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because, not because of us, but because of Christ. Isaiah 58, 8 and 9 says, He is here that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? So think about what it is like to be right with God. To be justified by God that no charges can stick. Justification is when God declares a man righteous, not because of what he has done, not because of who he is in and of himself, but because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, whom he imputes his, his righteousness to us as we trust in Christ by faith. This is the glory of the gospel. You see, Paul is just taking the gospel and he's saying, 
hear some gospel when you're going through suffering because we need the gospel. So the, sec- the next question, the fourth question is very similar. It's very related. He has already asked, what, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? But the, the fourth question is, who is he that condemneth? Who condemns? Who condemns? And his answer implied is there is no one. Remember that story in John 8 of the woman taken in adultery, brought before Jesus? And Jesus is riding on the ground and all the men are there and he's riding on the ground and he says, whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And one by one, they're all smitten in their conscience, whether for adultery or for whatever, they're smitten by God for their sins and they all leave one by one. And the Lord Jesus is left there with the woman standing in the midst. And it's not just him in there. They're in the midst of the crowd. And he says, where are your accusers? Where are those your accusers? And she says, there's not any, right? And he says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. What was Jesus saying? Was he saying that she didn't sin? Was he saying that she had not committed the sin? Not, I don't think so. He is saying that he clears her of her guilt. He is forgiving her. He is pardoning her. He is releasing her. He is justifying her and giving her a pardon. Go and sin no more. What a glorious Christ. What a glorious gospel that it can take sinners like us. Or like the woman taken in adultery, sinful, and having broken God's law. And we deserve that the stones should all be thrown upon us. But instead, Christ says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The devil will tell you when you're going through temptation, when you're going through trials, he will bring these accusations and he will tell you, you deserve this. You deserve what you're going through. You're no good after all. See how bad you are? God must be angry with you. But God says, who is he that condemns? The devil's darts can't stick in the believer. Why? Why are why is the believer beyond condemnation? Is he really just really a good guy? No. It it, it is Christ that died. That's what Paul says. It is Christ that died. He points us away from ourselves and he points us to Christ, to his person, to his work, and he says It is him, this perfect son of God, this perfectly righteous Christ. He points us to Christ. And he says, Christ is is the basis 
for your justification. Christ is the basis for your acceptance with God. Christ is the basis for your standing today. Christ is the basis for your righteousness. Because of who he is. He's the son of God. He's the perfectly righteous son of God. He is the God-man. And because of what he has done, he died. Not only that, he has risen again. Proving that his death was that his death was sufficient, and he is even at the right hand of God, even now, and he also makes intercession for us. In these four different facts, the facts of the gospel we see, and the facts of what Christ did after he worked the work of atonement, we see that Christ's work for us is sufficient so that we can stand. Before the Father. That Christ's work for us is sufficient so that we cannot be condemned, so that we can be accepted, so that we can have confidence, so that we can be safe in His hands. Because He died, because He rose, because He is at God's right hand, and because He intercedes for you, you are safe in Christ. It is these things that we must look to. It's Christ and His work his person and his work that we must look to when we are being attacked by the devil's assaults. This is the only thing that can keep a believer steadfast in the midst of the sufferings and the trials of this life. The fifth question that Paul asks is in in verse 35, and he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Who? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I put these two things, these questions together as one question. When you're suffering the devil's climactic accusation is this. God doesn't love you. God has forgotten you and he doesn't care about you. In fact, you're separated. You're cut off from the love of God. Like the Pharisees, when they mocked Christ on the cross, they said, let him deliver him, seeing he delights in him. In other words, what were they saying? They were saying, if God really loves you, then he's going to help you get off the cross. That's what they were saying. They were saying, God doesn't really love you. Because if he did, he wouldn't, you wouldn't be suffering like this. And that's the same accusation The devil makes against us. So this is the climax of the questions that Paul is asking. This is the climax of the chapter, I believe, in verse 35 and following. Is there anything or anyone who can separate you from the love of Christ? And the implied answer again is no one. We are safe in the love of Christ. Charles Hodge said this helpful um, statement, the great difficulty with many Christians is that they cannot persuade themselves that Christ or God loves them. And the reason why they cannot feel confident of the love of God is that they know they do not deserve his love. On the contrary, that they are in the highest degree unlovely. How can the infinitely pure God love those who are defiled with sin who are proud, selfish, discontented, ungrateful, disobedient. 
This indeed is hard to believe, but it is the very thing we are required to believe. What has God said about his love for us? In Jeremiah 31, 3, he said, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. His love predates our love. His love came before our love. His love is greater than our love. It's everlasting. In Ezekiel 16, God describes himself like this. We were wallowing in our blood. We were a mess, and God saw us wallowing in our blood, and he loved us, and he spread his mantle over us, and he made us his. How about in John, in the New Testament, 13.1, when it says, Jesus, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved us from eternity past, but he also loves us to eternity future. He doesn't stop. So the question is, can anything separate you or me from the love of Christ? What have we been talking about these past few verses? About sufferings. He's been talking about it. Can suffering separate you from the love of Christ? Well, Paul brings out some. He doesn't hold them back. He, he brings out the best. He says, tell tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Well, do these things happen to believers? Surely not, we say, in 20th century, 21st century America. No, Paul says, surely they do. Paul doesn't have his head in the sand. He is a realist and he went through sufferings. In 2 Corinthians, he makes a whole list of all his sufferings. And he says, if you're going to boast, I'll boast in this, you know. He has already told us that we must expect to suffer if we are going to reign with Christ. And he says in verse 36, as it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He's saying, yeah, that's true. That was in the Old Testament. It was written in Psalm 44, 22. And he's saying, it's true. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing suffering. We're seeing persecution. We're seeing assaults those who live godly in christ jesus shall suffer persecution sometimes it comes in these more extreme measures and sometimes in less extreme measures so paul's answer is shall these things separate us from the love of christ and he says verse 37 nay which means no they won't they won't keep you from the love of Christ. They won't cut you off. They might take your body, but they can't take your soul. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. They're powerless to separate us from his love. Well, we would say, in spite of these things, we are conquerors. Regardless of these things, we are conquerors. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, in these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Paul has no fear of these things overcoming the love of Christ. And he realizes that in these things, as we go through these sufferings, it shows even more powerfully the power of the love of Christ. 
We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We always come out on top in Christ. Not that we always have victory personally, but his victory is ours. He is the victor, and we conquer with him. Because he loved us, we have confidence that nothing can really hurt us. They can kill the body, but after that have nothing more that they can do. This is the confidence that keeps Christians faithful in the fire of persecution. Paul says, I am persuaded. Can be translated, I am sure. I am confident. What are you persuaded about, Paul? What are you persuaded about? What are you sure about? He says, I'm sure that death, he he goes on to give us a list of things that strike terror in men's hearts. And he begins with that king of terrors, death. Things that keep people up in the night. Things that terrify people, that people write horror novels about. Death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. God, Paul gives this awesome, awe-inspiring list of terrors, things that are so powerful that if they could, maybe could separate us from the love of God that attempt to. But he says, even death, the king of terrors, it can't. Even life with its pain, with its cancers, with its sickness, with its tragedies, with its accidents, divorces, rejection, ostracism, loss of money, loss of property, loss of jobs, loss of family, all sorts of tragedies in life. It cannot separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even angels in heaven or angels on earth or angels in hell any sort of angelic power, whether it's demonic or good angels. The principalities and powers may be speaking of political powers or even spiritual powers, the highest powers that are possible. Things present and things that are going on in your life that are present, that has enough cares to overwhelm you, but things to come, things of the future that You don't know what's going to happen. The thoughts of the future can be overwhelming as well. He said, height, even going as far as heaven above, and depth, even going as far as hell beneath or the earth below. He's pretty much covered it all. Then he says, nor any other creature. Everything that is in this earth is a creature. Everything's made by God other than God himself. He's saying nothing in this created order, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If anything could separate you from the love of God, surely it would be these things, right? That's what Paul's saying. He said, if anything, here I've given you a list, but he's saying none of those... None of those can do it. They aren't able because the love of God is stronger. The love of God is omnipotent. The love of God is all-powerful. None of these things can touch you. They cannot remove you from his love. Why? 
It is the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's not just his love for you personally, but it's his love in his son. And God always loves his son. He always will love his son. He never gets tired of his son. And he doesn't ever stop loving his son. He doesn't say, go and be someone else's son. He always wants his son. He always loves his son. And we are in his son. We are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, God loves you in Christ. He never gets tired of us and never stops loving us. We are safe in the love of God in Christ. We are secure in his love. This is the point of Romans chapter 8, of the end of Romans chapter 8, is that we can have confidence, we can have security, we can have peace, knowing that our, that our, that our God loves us in Christ. And that his love will make sure that we make it to the end. It will make sure that we get to glory at last. His love is a decided commitment for his people's good. What a glorious truth. So in application, let's apply the application of the wonderful passage. First of all, let's think of a wicked response because we want to forestall or avoid this wicked response <coughs> to the love of God in Christ. Some may say, well, I'm safe so I can sin. I'm safe so it doesn't matter how I live. I can just coast because I'm justified so I don't have to worry about how I live. God forbid, Paul says in Romans 6, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? If you're a true believer, you will not take this truth and say, I can just live how I want. I can just keep on doing what I want to do. No, you love God and you are the called according to his purpose. His purpose is to make you like Jesus and you are pursuing this with all your heart. Not perfectly, but you desire holiness. God is not saying he will keep us safe to sin. He is saying he will keep us safe from sin. His mission of deliverance from sin will not abort. He will get us through to the finish line. If you're not pursuing holiness at all, you're not pursuing the salvation that God has given. You do not know the salvation he came to bring. Salvation that is not from sin is no salvation at all. Instead, Secondly, this truth should not lead us to sit back and relax and do nothing. Rather, it should urge us on to press on in obedience, in Christ-likeness, in Christian service, because our labors are not in vain in the Lord. Because we are safe in Christ, we can go forth, conquering and to conquer. Thirdly, faith in Christ, his gospel work. Remember his death, his resurrection, his session, his intercession, and in his electing love, his choosing love, will strengthen us to suffer for and with him. Let me repeat that. Faith in Christ, his gospel work, and his electing love will strengthen us to suffer for and with him, to take up the cross and follow him. 
as we learn Sunday. We need to know these things. We need to think about these questions, even to bring them up when we are suffering or other times. We need to ask these questions and say, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Ask yourself these questions. Charles Hodge says, How wonderful, how glorious, how secure is the gospel. Those who are in Christ Jesus are as secure as the love of God. The merit, the power, and intercession of Christ can make them. They are hedged around with mercy. They are enclosed in the arms of everlasting love. We are to rest and have confidence in the love that God has for us in his Son, Jesus Christ. In closing, I would like to bring the passage and its application to the unbeliever. To anyone here who does not know Christ or hearing this message over the, over the, over the internet. The opposite of all of these things is true for the non-believer. Is God for you or against you? If you are not in Christ, God is against you. He is opposed to you. If God is against you, who can be for you? If you don't know that God gave his son for you because you are refusing to trust in him, how can you have confidence that he will give you anything? A believer in Jesus Christ is free of charges. But those who do not believe, those who are not trusting, can be charged. In fact, they are guilty the law has already pronounced you guilty. Romans 3.19 says that the law declares men guilty before God. John 3.18 says that you are already condemned if you do not believe in the Son. How dreadful to be separated from the love of Christ both now and for eternity. This is the hell of hell. Not to be separated from our friends or our families, but to be separated from the person, the loving King of heaven. This is the terror, Paul said, by which we persuade men. Do you fear the things Paul mentioned? Tribulation? Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? How about death? How about life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, or any other creature? If you are not in Christ, these things will overwhelm you. They will overtake you, and they can destroy you because your life is all about the present, the temporal, the fleeting stuff of this life. Why do people call death the king of terrors? This is only because of what comes after death. Hebrews 9.27 tells us it is appointed unto men once to die, 
But after this, the judgment. The wrath of God is the king of terrors. The Apostle John painted this picture in Revelation chapter 6. And he talked about the rich men, the, the great men, the mighty men, the bondmen and free men running to hide themselves and calling on the rocks and the mountains to, to fall on them. To hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath had come and who is able to stand. Who is able to stand in that day? Only those who are in Christ. Only those who have turned from their sins and placed their faith in the perfect person and finished work of Christ. Only those who, in this life, can have confidence that Christ died for them and rose again on their behalf. They can stand, but no one else can. And I ask you tonight, are your feet firm? Are you standing secured by sovereign love? Are you safe in the sovereign grace of a wonderful Savior? Then nothing can stop you. Nothing can destroy you. Nothing can take away the blessing that God has for you in Christ. Winds and weather cold and heat, death, sickness, cancer, all sorts of destructions, even if someone could put you in jail and take your life tomorrow. What is it? But Christ is for you. However, if not, if you do not have Christ, you have no place to hide. Flee to Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for your holy word. Lord, we submit ourselves to the glorious truth of your holy word. We ask you, Lord, that you would plant these things deep in our hearts. Lord, that we would not forget them. Lord, that they would make an impact in our lives, the truth for eternity. Father, I pray that you would be glorified by drawing souls to your Son that you would be glorified by bringing men to be right with God. Father, that you would be glorified by comforting your people, strengthening them, establishing them, and making them what you'd have them to be. In Jesus' name.